This is Cabernet and True Crime, the place where good wine and true crime come together. Hi friends. I don't even care that I fucked up that intro. Like, I am just so excited to be here. Like, I'm literally sitting in the podcast closet with, like, just this shit-eating grin. It it feels so good to be back here, and I don't really have a good reason why I took the time off. It's been almost a month since I've released a new episode. Depression, uh, probably, <laughs> if I had to guess. I don't know. It's been a really rough month, I guess. I don't know. I don't know what the deal's been. I just couldn't bring myself to come in here and, like, do this. I don't know. Um, my nine to five job has required a lot of my attention and my mental capabilities. And by the time I get home, I just, I just don't have it in me to do this, you know? And it's, it, I think it's like a double whammy because like, I'm already stressed from work. And then this is something that I I like to do. This is something that I enjoy as a hobby. And to also not even feel up to doing this was like, so I'm already stressed out. I'm not doing the one thing that really like helps me get out all the stress. So I'm just so happy I'm here. It just, it feels so good. I'm, I don't know if I can ever explain this feeling. Like I just feel, I feel so happy and you know, if you're still here and you've listened to this for as long as you have, whoever you may be, thank you because you, you, dear listener, are the reason why I continue to do this, and it gives me the motivation to be here. So, I'm here. I'm back. I'm gonna do the best I can. Um, I do go later this month and get my prescriptions sorted. So, I guess we'll find out whether or not that helps. I'm not sure. You know, the the life and joy of you know having a mental illness in today's society. I mean, well, now today's society is better than it ever was because if, you know, I had this ailment, what, 200 years ago, I would have been burned at the stake or, you know, thrown into a river. I'm not sure. Or, you know, put into a psych asylum for the rest of my life. You don't know. So I, you know, I'm thankful to be a woman with a mental illness in, you know, the 2020s. It's good. Uh, so bear with me as I figure my shit out and let's come here to, let's just do what we came here to do, right? So we're going to talk about true crime. Um, because of the current situation going on in my brain, whatever that may be, um, I decided that today was going to be, to get back into the swing of things, and, you know, not to put too much pressure on myself, was to do the whole Jana Reads You an old blog post that I covered before. So we're going to do that today, and hopefully... The excitement that I have of being in here right now transfers over into, like, let's just fucking get back into it. Right? Right. So, <clears throat> whoa, I don't know what, I just, I just went through puberty, apparently, in that, <laughs> in that little sentence. Wow. Um, okay, so with that being said, <clears throat> today we're going to be talking about, so... I I know it's pronounced Dorothy, um, but it's spelled Dorothea, you know, like D-O-R-O-T-H-E-A, Dorothea. Uh, maybe it's just 
the Ohio in me that cannot pronounce somebody's names right. I have no idea. But today we're going to be talking about Dorothy Puente, um, or the granny killer. So, I don't recall if I've ever seen her on any other type of podcast or, like, true crime thing. I don't remember where I heard her from. Um, so if you're listening to this and you're like, I know exactly where she's from, I'm sorry in advance. I cannot remember off the top of my head. Um, that's just who I am as a person right now. So, you know, normally I like to do, I really do like to give credit when it's due. Um, so if you know, let me know and I'll, I will share this and give somebody credit. Uh, as far as I know, I don't know where I got all this information from because I did this over here over like two years ago now. So listen, I'm out of my realm. I'm out of practice, right? So let's just get into it. I feel very uncomfortable, like excited and uncomfortable at the same time. Does that make sense? I feel like like so stoked to be here that like I don't know how to react as an adult anymore. Does that make sense? No, probably not. Probably, really probably not. But today we're talking about Dorothy Puente. Um, at the time I thought it was super funny and I always like to pair my true crimes with a type of wine and I pr- provided a link so if you wanted to like get the wine before you drank it, I thought it was really cool. It's weird how I think two years ago that I was like so fucking cool and now I'm like, wow, you're an interesting person. Um, so a great wine to pair with this crime is called Sweet Old Lady the white blend. Um, okay, let's go. Let's do it. So on November 7th, 1988, police visited the Sacramento home of 59-year-old Dorothy Puente. She owned a 16-bedroom care home with around 40 tenants in her residence. She seemed a savior to the neighborhood, taking in the elderly, the drug addicts, hiring the homeless for lawn upkeep and home repair. And truly, people thought she was, quote, looking after the more difficult tenants that other places may have turned down. Um, But this visit was about to change all that. So police had come to the home to check on Alvaro Bert Montoya, who had last been heard from in August. Um, Puente had given them a mostly valid excuse, saying that he had returned to Mexico. Um, Five days later, another tenant of Puente's went missing, and police arrived yet again, this time with shovels. And that's when they started finding the bodies. Dorothea Gray was born in Redlands, California on January 9th, 1929s to 1929s. You know what I'm saying. 1929, two parents, Jesse and Trudy Gray. Her father was a cotton picker, um, earning a measly wage, which he and his wife spent mostly, mostly on booze. Um, when Dorothy was four, Her father died of tuberculosis, and her mother passed away when she was six in a tragic car accident. Dorothy was sent to live in an orphanage. When Dorothy was 16, she married Fred McFall, who had just come back from being stationed in the Pacific Ocean during World War II. Their marriage was short, only lasting 1945 to 1948. The couple had two baby girls, both of which were given up for adoption. And in 1948, Dorothy was pregnant again, but resulted in a miscarriage. And then Fred would die later that year of a heart attack. Without Fred's income, Dorothy indulged in criminal activity. Um, Shortly after his death, she was jailed for six months for forging checks. And right after her release, she she became pregnant again with a man she did not know. And that baby was also given up for adoption. In 1952, 
Dorothy met and married a Swede named Axel Johansson, and the marriage lasted a tumultuous 14 years. During their marriage in the 1960s, Dorothy was arrested for running a brothel, for which she spent 90 days in jail, and after being released, she became a nurse's aide, helping care for the elderly and disabled in their homes, something she enjoyed and became one of the motivators for her to buy her own boarding home. She divorced Johansson in 1966 to marry Roberto Puente. He was 19 years younger than she was, and the marriage ended in 1968. After her divorce to Puente, Dorothy was married for the fourth time, but the marriage only lasted a few months. And so Dorothy Puente, deciding to keep her last name from her third marriage, began to spend time in bars looking for older men who, who were receiving benefits. She would learn how to forge their signature to steal money from them, and ultimately she was caught and was charged with 34 counts of treasury fraud, for which she only received probation. So how about that? <laughs> Sounds like something maybe I should get into, right? Get a little, get a little bit extra of that cash sweet up on those old guys, right? Seems like an easy time. So um, as the landlord of her boarding home, Puente had mixed reviews from her tenants. Some of them loathed her. She was known for being, quote, stingy and sometimes refused to give them their mail, keeping checks for herself. Others adored her and often remarked how kind she was for making them home-cooked meals. Police estimated Puente was earning around $5,000 a month from her routine of mail theft. She would keep all the checks for herself, collecting the mail before the proper recipient ever saw it, and she loaned out her tenants stipends and pocketed the rest for expenses. Because of this and her previous offenses, parole agents had visited her a minimum of 15 times, and she was ordered to stay away from the elderly, but she was never even cited with a violation. In April of 1982, Puente's 61-year-old friend and business partner, Ruth Monroe, began living in the boarding house. She died soon after moving there from an overdose of codeine and Tylenol. Uh, Puente stated that Monroe was depressed because of her terminally ill husband and that she had purposely overdosed, and police ruled the death as a suicide. A few weeks later, police were back in the home. One of Puente's residences... Res, whoa. Residents... Malcolm McKenzie accused Puente of drugging him and stealing his money. He was one of four similar complaints of this happening, and police found enough evidence, and Dorothy was convicted of three charges of theft in August, on August 18th of 1982, and she was sentenced to five years in prison. During her time in jail, she began corresponding with 77-year-old retiree Everson Gilmouth, who lived in Oregon. She was released after three years of her sentence, and Gilmouth was there in his candy apple red 1980 Ford pickup truck waiting for her. Um, shortly after her release, Dorothy and Everson began planning their wedding. In November of 1989, Dorothy Puente hired a man named Ismael Flores to install some wood paneling in her apartment. She didn't have the full amount of money to pay for the job, but offered Flores a 1980 candy apple red Ford, saying that it was her boyfriend's, but he was, quote, in Los Angeles, and he no longer needed it. That's not suspicious. She then asked if he could build her a wooden box that was six foot by three foot by two foot to, quote, store books and other items in. Yeah, you heard me right. <laughs> There's nothing suspicious about this, huh? It's just real, real casual, real casual for a box, right? <laughs> So Flores agreed and built the box and then left it there for her to use. 
which, you know what, uh, good on you, Ismael Flores, for just living your life and not sticking your nose in other people's business. That's been my, um, like, 2020 New Year's resolution is to, like, stop giving a fuck about other people and what they're doing and just focus on myself. And clearly you can tell it's really not going all that well, but, um, Mr. Flores is quite the person to look after. Listen, your boyfriend says, you say the boyfriend quote doesn't need his car anymore and you want me to build an oddly specific person-sized box. Like, I'm just going to do that for you, get my paycheck, and leave, right? He's, yeah, a very good role model in that situation. Just mind your own goddamn business. How about that? That's <laughs> my <laughs> my new role model. Um, Okay, so he built her the box to store books in, which whatever. He agreed, and she paid him. Cool. So, um, a few days later, she asked Flores if he would help her get the box to her storage unit, citing that she was an elderly woman, and it would be difficult for her to move the box herself. Reasonable. Yeah, you know what? You got this weird, unwieldy box that you need put someplace? Sure, I'll help you do it. You know? Nothing suspicious about this weird person-sized box, correct? Um, so... She joined him on the way to her unit, but halfway there, she explained that she was, um, oh, I completely forgot this part. She joined him on the way to her unit, but halfway there, she explained that what was in the, in the nailed shut box was just junk, and really there was no need to take it to her facility. She convinced him that it could be dropped off by a riverbank, and they left the box there, which... If you're, you know, Mr. Flores at this point, this really old lady asked you to specifically build, like, this very specifically sized box, and, you know, whatever. You want a box made, I did your woodwork, you give me this candy apple red Ford that you say your boyfriend doesn't need anymore. All very, you know, suspicious things. But if you go, so, I mean, I don't know how to build anything, so I guess let me preface that, let me preface this with that, that I know nothing about how much it would take to build a six by three by two box, because I've never nailed anything in my life. (laughs) I'm a very massive stranger to, actually, that's a lie, I did take seventh grade wood shop, so I, I know about that much as it comes to, like, building things. So, you go through all this work to build a fucking, like, box for this old woman. Cool. Whatever. So she pays you, and then a couple days later, she's like, hey, I have this box. I want to take it to my storage unit. Still not weird. Like, I get that. You know, some people, I live in an apartment. Houses are very small. I understand. But then the woman's like, help me take this to my storage unit. But no, 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 no. Just kidding. We're going to leave it by a riverbank. What? <laughs> That's the point where I, I don't think I could mind my own business anymore, where I'd be like, this is suspicious. And, you know, like, I guess really up until this point, I would, I mean, first, right off the rip, I would have assumed it was suspicious. If you're telling me you're giving me a truck because your boyfriend's in Los Angeles and he doesn't, quote, need it anymore. Like, how did he get to Los Angeles? Why doesn't he have his truck anymore? This beautiful candy apple, candy apple red Ford. You're going to tell me he doesn't need it anymore? That's suspicious. So I guess maybe I've just, like, listened to too many true crime podcasts and, like, I watch too much true crime because I'm instantly suspicious of, like, well, why doesn't your boyfriend need it anymore? That's very 
uh, I guess, alarming to me as a person. But pretend like, you know, that wasn't suspicious. You make this box, that's not suspicious. But, like, the second this woman is like, help me take it to my storage unit, but, like, just kidding, we're going to leave it by a riverbank. That's the moment where, like, I don't care, Mr. Flores, you are a saint for not even being suspicious, I guess. Like, I mean, really, truly, the, the icon of just minding your own fucking business. Love this guy. So, well, I mean, I don't because somebody died. I mean, I don't think he had anything to do with somebody dying. Because you know where this is going. But I don't think Mr. Flores has anything to do with that. But really, 10 out of 10 points to you for just minding your own damn business. Love that. I can't do that as a person. And I don't expect anybody else to. But I'll give him credit for doing so. And I'm done. I'm stepping off my pedestal. Sorry. Um, so on January 1st, 1986... Two months after the box had been left, a fisherman spotted it and called the police because immediately suspicious. I'd be that fisherman. I would have seen that box and be like, yep, there's totally a body in there calling the police. I'm that fisherman. I need to be more like more like Mr. Flores. Um, so they found a badly decomposed body. Three years after it was found, it would be identified as Everson Gilmouth. After killing Gilmouth, Puente continued to send letters to his family, saying that he had fallen ill and was unable to write them himself. She was still running her business and still needed his social security checks. Suspicion of Puente's activity um, started with a homeless man named Chief. She had made him her personal handyman and was hired to dig up the basement concrete and remove contents with a wheelbarrow. Um, shortly after the concrete was removed, a fresh slab was poured in the basement, as well as a new slab in the backyard, removing the once-standing garage to do so, and after his work was completed, Chief disappeared entirely. And at this point, police come to her house and find freshly distributed, or, ooh, sorry, I know how to read, freshly disturbed soil after appearing for a wellness check of her two tenants. The first body located in her yard belonged to a Leona Carter, who was 78 years old, and police would find seven more bodies after Carter. While digging up the bodies, the crime scene investigators noticed what appeared to be um, cloth and beef jerky. Initially, Dorothy Puente was not considered a suspect in these crimes, um, she asked if she could leave the scene to, quote, grab a cup of coffee, and police allowed her to leave. She ran and made it to Los Angeles, and her first stop was at a dive bar, and she was trying to befriend an elderly man, for you guessed why, but he recognized her from the news, and reports, and he, like, reported, and she got arrested, like, yeah, no, she didn't get arrested. Well, she did, eventually, but I don't know if it was because of this guy. But he reported her and was like, hey, I know this girl, she's from the news, she's a murderer person. So, yeah, she got caught. Um, so, in total, Dorothy Puente would be charged for the murder of nine people. So, Ruth Monroe, who was 61, Everson Gilmouth, who was 77, Alvaro Burt Montoya, who was 51, Dorothy Miller, who was 64, Benjamin Fink, who was 55, Betty Palmer, who was 78, Leona Carpenter, who was 78, James Gallup, who was 62, and Vera Faye Martin, who was 64. She was only convicted of three of the murders and charged with two life sentences for her crime. And um, I did have it in my um, original blog post. If you want to see a great photo album of all of Puente's victims, like if you want to see 
just all the good personal pictures of them and like get a kind of better understanding of who these people are I do include a link on there and um yeah it's sad that all these people who are taken advantage of had to die I mean they didn't have to well I mean okay well we're gonna get into the philosophical question that everybody dies eventually but it sucks that these older people who were in need thought they were finding someone who was going to help them out and that person took advantage of them for money that is stupid um greed is such a disgusting thing and i guess i'm personally not a greedy person and it it just baffles me how far people are willing to go for that greed and to get what they want out of somebody like that's actually disgusting to me those type of people and not even, like, not even the people who murder other people, but the people in general who are just, like, so driven by greed is disgusting. And what they're willing to do to other people for that money is just, it's absolutely disturbing. I guess I just live a different life. Um, yeah, so if you want to see the pictures of, sorry, I just, I keep stepping on my pedestal here and I'm gonna, I'm gonna back away from the situation. So Murderpedia has a bunch of great photo albums of Puente's victims. Um, I love Murderpedia not for what it is, but because it is a really great resource for information and pictures and anything you could really want. It's a great place to find information if you don't know where to start about somebody you're very interested in um, researching. And that's not, so not to say I don't get all my information off Murderpedia because I do like to delve a little deeper than that just because you guys know I like me a good, a good rabbit hole. But it is a great place if you if you're interested in some type of true crime and you don't know where to start I'm telling you Murderpedia is the best place to start getting your information and then you can pick up pieces and go from there and look um I don't suggest starting with Wikipedia although I mean I guess Wikipedia has its own place and time because Wikipedia does at the bottom source most of the things but I feel like going through Wikipedia is actually a lot more work than it is just to go through Murderpedia and the people who made that stunning 10 out of 10 love Murderpedia love the work they do um I've actually donated to Murderpedia and will probably every year forever because I want to keep that site running it's amazing I love it so it's really quality well done research and if you have wikipedia and murderpedia and also just the google machine and any other capable things you can research anything you want court documents are on the google machine it's all public data so you can look up basically anything you want um yeah so if you ever wanted to know how to find out more about a true crime it's out there you just you just gotta look you'll find it you'll find what you're looking for and just to know whether or not you want to find it just you know there are some crime scene photos that I've looked at that I was like yep I shouldn't have done that because now I'm gonna be fucked up for a while about that so with everything take that all with a grain of salt you can find anything you want on the internet just be careful with that information um okay sorry once again I'm gonna I'm, I'm out um okay so Dorothy Helen Puente died in Chowchilla California on March 27th 2011 from complications of, of colon cancer and liver cancer. She was 82 years old. Um, she maintained her innocence, saying that all the tenants she buried died of natural causes, and she firmly believed that until the day she died. And that, friends, is Dorothy Puente, a.k.a. the Granny Killer. 
I'm so happy to be back. I'm so happy to be here with you guys in the podcast closet. I'm hoping to get a lot of work done this week. Um, I am traveling for work, so I'll be stuck in a hotel room by myself for several hours, and I'm hoping to get a ton of work done, and I hope you all still love me at the end of this. (laughs) So I'm back. We're back. It's back. I hope you had a great True Crime Tuesday. I know we're late to the game. Listen, I'm doing the best I can. And I will see you all, hopefully, fingers crossed, for Serial Killer Sunday.